Welcome to Radio Survivor, the sound of strong communities. My name is Paul Reismandel. Hello, everybody. It's Eric Klein here. It's still good to be on Radio Survivor. And we're joined on the line by Jennifer Waits. Hi, Jennifer. Hi, guys. And you just got back from the Radio Preservation Task Force Conference, the second one that just happened in Washington, D.C. at the Library of Congress and a number of venues all over the Washington, D.C. area. So, Jennifer, can you just More tell us? More people need to know what the Radio Preservation yeah, they, Task they Force do. is. So, we, so tell That's us. That's why we're here. What, what is this task force? What is it about? It's part of the National Recording Preservation Board of the Library of Congress, and, and it's really a project to help identify radio collections that exist all over the United States and and bring them together in sort of a comprehensive way so that scholars are aware of the radio recordings and collections that are out there all over the country. And so that's been some of the work that I've been doing on the task force is helping to identify college radio specific collections. So a number of scholars are involved as research associates working to not only identify collections, but also to help to find grants so that people can digitize collections and and save, in some cases, materials that are in danger of, of disintegrating. And I understand that there were two plenary speeches that really kind of frame the importance of this kind of work made by two very uh, preeminent, I think, radio scholars and radio historians. Tell us a little bit about that, because I think it'll, it'll help kind of frame the value of what's going on here. Yeah, on, on the final day of the conference, there was a radio history plenary with Susan Douglas from University of Michigan and Michelle Hilms, who um, is from University of Wisconsin. And they both had some amazing remarks about the importance of radio history. Susan Douglas talked about how media history is being minimized today, that often in scholarship, there's a focus on presentism. And that was reiterated in some other conversations I had over the course of um, the time I spent at the conference. I talked to some, some academics who said that they had graduate students who didn't seem to be interested in history projects, that a lot of them were working on on projects that had to do more with things uh, taking place today. Well, things are certainly interesting enough to focus. You know, if, if you only want to talk about uh, November of 2017, you could talk about November of 2017 for the rest of your life. But so what What are the arguments for, for talking about November of 1999? Why should we care about history? Well, I mean, history helps us understand the present. And I think, uh, you know, historians uh, will often look at what's going on in present day and, and, and help provide context for, for why we might be seeing certain things happening in politics or, you know, certain thing, certain types of discussions happening surrounding, um, you know, whatever the topic might be. So sometimes there are patterns, right? We've seen something happen before and sometimes that allows us to kind of uh, know how to deal with it, maybe do it better a second time. Or sometimes I think, you know, as we talked with Christopher Terry a couple of weeks ago, to understand actually the, the current circumstance, you have to understand the past because especially when it comes to things like policy or different decisions that have been made that, that shape what we're doing, the original decision still stands, meaning something that was done in 1957, 1947, or 1997 actually still matters today. Part of 
what the celebration was at the, at the conference was the 50th anniversary of the uh, Public Broadcasting Act, yeah. which sowed the seeds for a lot of what we have now. But, but also, you know, uh, I understand that, you know, some comments were made about podcasting and its kind of role in maybe rejuvenating interest in audio media and radio. Right. Yeah. Susan Douglas mentioned that podcasts are luring people into listening, which is something that I think a lot of us have noticed that there's been this re, you know, and other people mentioned too, like who would have thought that in 2017, you have people who are super excited about audio drama and things that, that maybe a few years ago, people might've thought were relegated to, you know, the golden age of radio and, you know, some of these radio dramas that we think of as historical artifacts. So I think the the popularity of some of these current radio, uh, some of these current podcasts is attracting interest to radio in general, which is a great thing. Susan Douglas also mentioned that an interesting thing about podcasts is that often they are not constrained by the FCC. So if it lives as a podcast only, you know, you can say bad words and, you know, do a lot of things that maybe you can't do over licensed radio. And I thought it was funny that she argued that there was even an intimacy that podcasters create with listeners, with young listeners, simply by using the F word (laughs) that, that, you know, that Hmm. could be a specific thing that the casual nature of some podcasts where there might be a lot of swearing, that that could create an even higher level of intimacy among certain types of listeners. It's sort of speaking the same language in a way. Yeah. That, that, that's how, you know, because they're hearing people speak like they do every day. And and you think, oh, well, don't you hear that maybe a little bit on television and maybe don't you hear it on, some, on, on radio in some ways. But I think it's interesting to me identifying the fact that because that we have these uh, broadcast content rules that maybe to a lot of people seem a little antiquated compared to like what you can get on YouTube or elsewhere and now in podcasting that people still feel freer to speak their minds or to speak much more authentically for lack of a better word on on podcasts. I hadn't quite thought of it that way. I think that's, that's interesting. And the intimacy argument, you know, radio is often described as a more intimate medium. It makes sense what she's saying that if, if people are using everyday language and swear words, then it might even feel more like a conversation with a friend because if you're listening to licensed radio, you're not going to hear swear words. So maybe people are even more willing to suspend disbelief when the language is, is that much more sure. casual. I would include that um, on the radio, generally speaking, there's just a, um, there's a radio voice and yeah. in podcasts. Uh, people might sound a lot more like you and your friends, especially, right. especially if you're not a, a white person. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's many more communities and uh, who are represented in in, in podcasting or potentially, shall we say, represented, especially if we look beyond the uh, top of the iTunes charts, as we've sort of noted here again and again. But it seems like a theme also at the uh, Radio Preservation Task Force Conference was the difficulty of archiving and preserving this history, which in the case of podcasting yeah. is, is relatively is it, recent. Is it reasonable to say out loud that there is no such thing as an archival digital medium? Isn't that, 
I once back back when I was in college, it was taught to me that um, black and white 16 millimeter film is archival. It lasts for more than a hundred years without deteriorating. I don't think we. I I think right away we learned in the early 2000s that uh, compact discs were not archival medium. That anything burned onto a compact disc uh, was going to see the end of its life long before. Uh, the person who burned it to the disc. Uh, these things deteriorate. So how do we preserve digital media? Is it just by making lots and lots and lots of copies? Well, that's, yeah, that's definitely, um, and I wasn't in some of the heavy duty archival panels where those um, specifics were discussed, but from conversations that I heard during the sessions that I went to and from the conference last time around, there are periods of time where things were digitized in a certain format and then have had to be um, digitized again. And also Michelle Hilms, who is another eminent radio scholar who you mentioned uh, is from the University of Wisconsin. She also gave a plenary and, and had some interesting knowledge to drop on everyone. Yeah, I thought it was interesting. You know, she talked about the term radio studies not really encompassing all of the work that scholars are doing surrounding that area. And, and you know, that's something that we think about on this podcast and on Radio Survivor's website. You know, we think of radio in a very broad way. So she's proposing the term sound work to encompass radio and audio and even examinations of music presentations. So I thought that was a cool way of looking at it. She also talked about we really need to work to broaden the relevance of our field, meaning radio studies and sound work. And she graciously referred to the work of a handful of other scholars, and they were all scholars who were not at the conference. And I think a lot of people really appreciated that, that she was really generous, you know, in her praise of the work of other scholars during her own plenary. And then finally, she talked about this Radio Atlas project that actually provides subtitles to radio as another way to help broaden our scholarship so that you could potentially listen to a radio broadcast in its original language while reading subtitles in your language. And that helps not only extend scholarship, but extend the boundaries of radio, she talked about. And what is the name of that project? Do you remember? Radio Atlas. Called Radio Atlas. And we will definitely uh, put a link to that in our show notes at radiosurvivor.com slash podcast. And speaking of podcasts, that was a topic at the Radio Preservation Task Force Conference, which just happened in Washington, D.C. at the Library of Congress, which you were able to attend. And it was sort of problematized, right? Because it is born digital. It is something which does not exist on a cassette tape or a vinyl record or, you know, some kind, generally some kind of physical media that we think of can be easily put onto a shelf, uh, be in a closet, or you might discover going through someone's things or, or find in a library for that matter. And so that was actually a topic for an entire session there, Jennifer. What kind of came out in that? I mean, what, what are the concerns uh, about trying to preserve what is, I guess, recent history, podcasting? Right. Yeah, this is the Born Digital podcasting Born Digital session was one of my favorites. And a variety of people shared experiences and stories that touched on a whole bunch of different issues. And, and I know it's a big concern for archivists. How do you archive 
materials that have been digital all along. Some people looked at it from a historical perspective. Um, Andrew Bottomley, he is interested in the history of podcasting and talked about proto-podcasts like audio blogs from the early days of web radio. And I hadn't remembered all of these services, but there were services like Phone Blogger where you could call a phone number and essentially record, you know, your post. And then it would automatically create kind of like a voicemail that then could be on the web. Hmm. And he said... You know, for him as a scholar, you know, writing about the history of the early days of podcasting, he has a hard time even finding examples because um, it's hard to find. And he might find some on using the Wayback Machine, you know, which is part of archive.org. So maybe he can't find meaning it's not currently on the World Wide Web. He he goes into Google and he searches and it's not there anymore. But he seems to know that he seems to have the inkling that it once exists or he's found references to it somewhere else. Like I can imagine maybe if someone wrote about it in like the New York Times, you know, then they could have a URL there from 1994, but it it certainly probably doesn't work anymore. And things might have been saved, but then... Like he might find part of a website, but then the audio recordings that people had posted there might be lost. And there's discussion about a lot of material from the 1990s, a lot of audio material from the 1990s, you know, could entirely be lost. So that was an interesting perspective. We also heard from Jennifer Wong, and she talked about the hidden history of female podcasters from the early days, and that when corporate interests you know, have gotten involved in podcasting more recently, there's been this tension between sort of the hobbyists of the past versus maybe the bigger companies of today, that that even affects how the the story of the origins of podcasting is told. Can, can you say uh, more about that? I'm very, I mean, so as somebody who works for a big podcast company now, but who's been into podcasting since the very beginning, I'm, I'm curious, what is the tension that was discussed? Uh, if, if you're able to sort of pull that apart, a little bit for us. Yeah. Um, you know, so she talked about how some of the early podcasters might even have an entirely different definition of podcasting than, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. than some of the folks who have, who are coming at it from a more commercial perspective. And some pod, early podcasters even came up with a manifesto where they talked about what podcasting is and what it is not. I don't have that at hand. Uh, we'll talk about a different manifesto in a minute. Um, it sounds like a lot of manifestos have been created surrounding podcasting, which is also an interesting an interesting thing. Um, and clearly that means that there are battles taking place over defining what podcasting is and what podcasting isn't. She talked about how you know, the early podcasts were really an extension of blogging. And then other people today may be talking about podcasting as the future of radio. So, Hmm. you know, Jennifer Wong doing some some very interesting research, I think, about the history of of female podcasters. So, uh, you know, on these sessions, we had a number of presentations. So it was kind of a taste of all of these topics. And I would love to have so many people on the Radio Survivor podcast, because there were a lot of things that I'd like to explore further, including this particular research. Yeah. I mean, that's fascinating. And I'm, I'm trying to look back at my own memory and thinking about the metaphors that were used to discuss podcasting in like 2004, as the medium got a name and got a mechanism 
that you had these apps that would automatically download them. And and one metaphor that, that seems to always have come up when in terms of audio on the internet is pirate radio, right? And it always comes up because you don't need a license, right? And that being the biggest barrier to being on the radio, uh, legally at the very least, is having a license from the FCC and always coming up to, and you don't need a license and you can just make whatever you want and write. And you can say the F word, as we mentioned, you can you can talk about whatever you want and just put it up there on the There's internet. There's no clock. There's no clock. And I remember that being it. And, it. and my recollection is it also tended to have a very tech heavy element, meaning I mean, so many of the people who were experimenting early on were also part of a, a sort of online tech community, people who were programmers or adjacent to programmers and way into technology. And it tends to be gendered, uh, less so now, but certainly more than towards male, which I'm sure does nothing to help access and highlight the women who were pioneering in the medium uh, 15 years ago <laughs> or so. And as you're saying that, I'm I'm thinking... Jennifer Wong might possibly respond that you might not have even seen these podcasts that the women mm-hmm. were creating at the time. So, yeah, um, right. That makes uh, sense. That could be part of the problem. And some of it was, you know, some of the tension is amateur versus pro. And she described it kind of being like the early years of radio. And now I'm remembering a little bit about this manifesto that this one podcaster from Craftlet came up with. And, and she asked for, a procast versus a podcast definition and and describe that things like serial are not podcasts that that is a professional hmm. is a you know a <laughs> professional product so it's interesting i mean this this highlights a lot of i think these divisions which have developed in all sorts of media platforms over the years um you know whether it's been when punk rock became pop music, you know, whether, whether, whether you cite that as Nirvana or you cite it as earlier in time, uh, you know, and then in, in, for podcasting, because it was an amateur medium for its first, you know, seven, eight years, it really didn't become much of a, uh, professionalized medium until well into the, into the 2010s, actually. Um, and you know, the, the commercialized aspect is, is much more recent. Um, it's always interesting to me that the argument over owning the term itself, since, you know, the existence of a serial doesn't put anyone out of business. I mean, it doesn't put us out of business, right? I don't think it changes the very nature of, of what we do here at Radio Survivor as a podcast. I'm not sure it steals any audience from us, um, but I can understand the perception that when there is a big podcast to which there are millions of listeners, which again is a very recent phenomenon that any podcast has millions of listeners. It feels like you're being kind of crowded out. Um, and maybe you are, maybe it's harder to find. I think that that comment you made that I don't remember so many women podcasters or I, my sense is that they were marginalized in the, in the period of like say 2004, 2005 is because right. I was not looking anywhere where I would find them. There weren't aggregators. It wasn't like it was easy to find podcasts at the time. And if I wasn't already following uh, these media creators, maybe they were bloggers, maybe they were writers. I wouldn't have found it. And that's right. 
an interesting aspect. I mean, it's something which we've pointed out on the podcast here many times before is that, uh, you know, podcasting is an opt-in medium. You don't stumble upon it very easily. Uh, you know, people tend to find more by word of mouth and, and, uh, than they do by just sort of happening into it. And, and that has, that has biases, right? <laughs> that there are biases that, that can be enacted. So it's interesting to hear that this is being actively explored and, and actively studied. And, and I guess, I have a question, I don't, and, and, and forgive me, this is a loaded question, and that, that, so that, that you won't be able to answer it. But I'm wondering, did anyone, I mean, did they tackle it all, why it is important to preserve podcasts? Because I think for some people, they would say, well, look, I mean, there's a lot of podcasts out there, and, and many of them suck. <laughs> many of them are terrible. Uh, do, do those need to be preserved? And if so, why? Was, and did, was that discussed at all? Well, I mean, in... Jennifer Wong was talking about, um, you know, since female podcasters, especially in the early years, um, aren't typically part of the narrative, you know, she's concerned about preserving these particular podcasts because she wants to make sure those voices aren't lost entirely. Um, you know, even people during that period of time were unaware, Mm -hmm. um, then going forward, you know, that story it won't be told. So that that's part of the impetus um, for these particular podcasts. And, and I mean, it's actually when, when Andrew Bottomley was talking about, you know, the early days of audio blogs, it, it's amazing to me as somebody who lived through all this. And, and I worked at an internet music company from 2000 to 2001. And it's amazing how within a short period of time, even a time period that all of us have, you know, were present during, um, it's amazing how quickly our memory and details about these experiences are lost. So I think there is something important about preserving things as you go so that you have the context for understanding, you know, the true history, um, so that it isn't rewritten by somebody who, um, maybe has other interests. So it it was a good reminder to me. And it's something that I think about with all the new radio stations that are cropping up right now that, you know, it's important to start talking about your history, talking about your story and preserving it from the very beginning. And, and, and during the early days of the web, um, you know, there were so many startups and that, that went out of business or were consolidated. And I'm not sure, you know, it sounds like many of those companies, um, you know, haven't really put in their archives out there. So, sure. so how do you dig up all of these um, very short-lived projects that are part of the story? So it, it's a it's a difficult it's a challenging thing for scholars who are trying to research the early days of the web. That's the voice of Jennifer Waits, who is Radio Survivors college radio uh, resident expert. My name is Eric Klein. This is Radio Survivor. Uh, I'm joined by Paul Reese Mandel. And Jennifer has just back from the Radio Preservation Task Force. And we're talking about preserving podcasts or even proto-podcasts. I'm reminded of a service that I signed up for. <laughs> it's, it was called uh, Posterous. P-O-S-T-E-R-O-U-S. You could call a voicemail and uh, post 
what is this posterous? It's gone now is the point. <laughs> but it was um, audio. So it was audio. It, it was actually the reason I found out that it existed at all was there was a job uh, that I was applying for in radio that the the um, the boss who was going to be doing the interviews recommended everyone sign up for a posterous account and then post their audio there so that that's how they would access it to to judge the candidates. Um yeah, and, and so Posteris was a place that you could uh, have bits of audio posted, and uh, and then that company, as so many internet companies do, uh, quickly shut down. And every you know, I think they gave everyone like a two weeks notice: get your audio, uh, or or don't. And so yeah, where's where is Posteris uh, these days in the memories of internet scholars or even uh, you know. Uh, internet radio historians. It's yeah. difficult to access any of that stuff. And, and people may or may not remember that Twitter started out as a podcast company huh. called Odeo, O-D-E-O. And its contribution was to allow you to easily record your podcast through a web interface or upload your audio. So again, I think taking it actually takes a step off of that posterous or these other... Uh, sort of apps where you called yeah, on the phone. Posterous was like 2009. It's the earliest posterous I have. Interesting, because Odeo would have been uh, much closer to, say, like 2006, 2005, but allowing people to take that leap and, and record the podcast uh, without needing to have all this extra extra gear. And, and that company morphed into Twitter, and of course then Odeo shut down. And I don't know what happened to all those podcasts that were stored on Odeo. It's um, a good question. You know, I would yeah, love Twitter. to investigate that because I, I talked with one of the engineers at Odeo uh, some 12 or 13 years ago on my old podcast <laughs> called Media Geek uh, and radio show at the time. So, uh, boy, I have to look back into that. I know. Yeah, I remember attending a panel at, um, at UC Berkeley and somebody from Odeo was there. And, and Twitter was really just sort of a little side feature yeah. of, of it. So how things have changed. You know, and, and we were sort of talking about this sort of pro slash amateur divide in, in podcasting. And, you know, it sort of brings up the idea of sort of a punk rock ethos versus a more corporatized ethos. And, and Jennifer, the folks from uh, the Sound Studies blog who have their own podcast called Sounding Out, um, they were also there at the Radio Preservation Task Force uh, conference, and they had some ideas to express about that divide. Yeah, Jennifer Stover, who's also at SUNY Binghamton, um, she represented Sounding Out, and it, it, she had so many interesting things to say, and um the sounding out blog is a little bit different, um, in that every week it could be a completely different format. So sometimes it might be an interview like we do on radio survivor. Other weeks, it might be a montage or a live performance or a mixtape or a sound walk. And it's not always What's a sound walk. It's, I'm not even entirely sure I what a sound it's, walk it's is. It's like, <laughs> uh, it's like environmental audio. Mm. So where you, where you, you know, a photo walk is when you walk around and you take photos of what you see. I think sound walk is you walk okay. around with uh, a recorder sure. and get environmental sounds and things like that. Okay. I've made many sound yeah. walks. <laughs> that would, that would have been my guess as well. Um, so she said that audiophiles have criticized them saying that the audio quality is awful and you know, which they, 
they don't dispute. Um, and in response to that, the sounding out folks wrote back with a manifesto and, and part of that is they're focused more on access and they really want to get their particular stories out there. Um, they want to be able to get particular performances out there for people to hear. And, and their feeling is if, if the audio quality suffers, then, you know, that's just the way it is. And, you know, they're doing this on time stolen. They say, you know, they all have other jobs. <laughs> Sounds like radio survivor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But we have Paul Reese Mendel. <laughs> what sure, the hell is that sure, supposed to To be? make sure we sound good, no matter how little time we have. <laughs> yes. So, so yeah, it's kind of a, I, I had never heard that argument before that, you know what? The sound quality is not that great. And, you know, you're just going to have to deal with that. Um, and I thought it was, it's kind of an interesting take to be sort of unapologetic about it and explain, just, you know, they have a very audience basically. Well, you know, it's interesting to me. I have a lot of thoughts about it because, you know, my previous career was in, was in educational media, educational video, educational audio. And in that realm, there were long arduous debates yeah. about this very issue about quality in, in terms of, as you were, you know, if you're trying to videotape lectures or you were having students create media, you know, how important would the production value be? And, you know, is there a standard? What should the standard be? Sure. And, you know, and I certainly, I remember having, uh, I vividly this debate with a journalism professor who basically said that you shouldn't be having any student who isn't basically a media or production or journalism student trying to make video because they're going to do it badly. It's just a waste of time and it'll be terrible because you'll have to spend, you know, uh, you know, the first two years of their education teaching them how to do it right. So why even bother? That was sort of the extreme end. Of course, I said back to him, I said, oh, so, I mean, I guess we shouldn't really ha expect students to write either then. <laughs> well, <laughs> but, uh, you know, and, and, and so I've been around these debates for a long time, and certainly the debates happen in, in, in podcasting as well. Yeah, I've, I just, uh, just this month was working on a freelance project with uh, two interviews that were related. One recorded right into microphones, it sounded crystal clear, and the other was recorded over the internet, over a cell phone. And the my recommendation uh, to my friend who's producing the podcast was not to use the incredibly uh, rich and interesting conversation recorded over the internet, over the cell phone, because um, it's too hard to hear. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, and, and there are times, though, I mean, I just think back myself, how many... 15th generation dubbed cassettes yeah. or uh, badly copied videotapes I was willing to watch or listen to. Just, it depends on how challenging you're willing to be to your audience. Yeah, because how, you're going to yeah, lose exactly. people. You're going yeah. to lose somebody the, if you challenge And them. yet there are times when, and if I watch YouTube sometimes and I look at channels and I'll see this video, it's like, it's been viewed a million times and I find it barely watchable, yeah. you know, through not, not because of the subject matter, but because of the, the, the production values or maybe the audio is really terrible. I have a hard time hearing it, but I, but yet it, it seems not to matter to a lot of people. And I think that, um, I, that's why I think it's an interesting debate. I don't have, I, I'm not coming down on either side. I think you can problematize it, but I think it's also important to recognize that the, the, the notion of production value or putting a standard in place 
can itself be a barrier and filter, yeah. right? And so the fact that, sh- that um, this gets framed uh, by uh, by Jenny Stover as an access issue, I think is vital, right? Because she's getting it back to this core of saying, yes, and so by putting this barrier in place, will you will you ensure that certain voices aren't heard at least now, right? At least in this instance. Uh, and it's more important for them to be heard than it is for us to be able to polish it or drag them into a studio um, and, and make it perfect, right? And I think um, I find that resonant. I, I resonate a lot with that. Even if myself, if I'm doing it, I try kind of hard to make it pretty easy to listen to. <laughs> Yeah. And I mean, and even doing their podcast, she sees as being an archival practice. So Mm. they might be airing things that other people might not have heard otherwise. So they're creating an archive. And an interesting aside, I just realized that um, they also made note that the Sounding Out podcast is actually backed up on tape. (laughs) So like like cassette tape or reel to reel. some sort of tape. I, I don't remember the specifics. So but, um, uh, the reason why I'm, I push it because there there's digital tape, which people use to archive things that are digital. Um, it's called LTO, I think. Anyway, that's my old uh, IT background uh, coming back uh, on top of me. Uh, but it's, it's still like, it's more like a hard drive in that way. It's still just the digital data just stored in a different medium. Um, as opposed to if I were to sort of dub all the radio survivor podcasts onto cassette, which would be a very, very different process. Yeah. And I don't even know if we heard the, the specifics other than, you know, she was joking. It was podcasts on tape. So, um, because if if you're storing your podcast in the cloud, so to speak in a host somewhere, whether it's, you know, Google or, or SoundCloud or wherever, or Amazon, um, the likelihood is somewhere, some in some data center, your podcast actually is on a tape ah. <laughs> because it is used as a backup medium. I mean, some, you know, you may never be able to access it. And of course it's piled in with people's websites and databases and everything else. It's not a tape you could put, put in your uh, deck in your car, but, but it probably is on a tape somewhere. Yeah. So there you go. <laughs> but that, that's getting, you know, it's sort of It's because tape gets still gets used and it gets used in a lot of ways. Although as a sort of consumer medium, it's definitely uh, much more, much more marginal, I think. Um, you know, uh, this conference, the radio preservation task force conference at the library of Congress um, also coincided with a big anniversary, uh, which just happened on November 7th and that's the 50th anniversary of the public broadcasting act. And so that was also a topic there at the conference, wasn't it, Jennifer? Yeah. And it was, um, it led to a variety of other special events. They had a symposium on preserving public broadcasting at 50 years that was put together by library of Congress, WGBH and the American archive of public broadcasting. Um, so that was a big four-hour block of time at the Library of Congress with panels featuring all sorts of luminaries, um, including Cokie Roberts, Judy Woodruff, Dick Cavett, Jim Lehrer, some former FCC commissioners. Um, and, and so that was open to some folks who probably weren't attending other parts of the conference, you know, because there were some heavy hitters and 
a lot of that panel was reflecting, or a lot of those panels were reflecting back on on TV, public TV history, um, with bits bits about radio, and and there was also an event at NPR with Bill Simmering who um, who did a Q and A um, essentially about the early days of NPR, and, and, and who is he? He was um, the original program, originally, originally in charge of programming at NPR, and was pretty instrumental in in the early days of NPR. So this has been like the early nineteen seventies. Yeah, so he he talked about that and um, and talked about all things considered, which he uh, was responsible for launching at NPR, and and so there was some lovely bits of nostalgia where we got to hear some early episodes um, and some episodes back to back that, that brought tears, tears to people's eyes in the audience. Um, mm. Why? So they, they played um, a Maurice Sendak interview mm. from uh, a few decades ago and then one right before he died. And, um, and the interviews, showed really different sides of him. Um, Can you remind us who he is? Oh, Maurice Sendak. Um, He wrote Where the Wild Things Are and In the Night Kitchen and lots of other amazing illustrated children's stories. He was Uh, not shy about uh, a lot of public figures. I'm a a big fan of Maurice Sendak. And I know that as he aged, he got grumpier in public. So I wonder if that was part of it, that uh, by the end of his oh. life, he was angry. Oh, expo- no, it was, was quite the opposite. Oh, that's nice. They didn't so, select the clips then where he told it like it is. He would talk about how uh, how bitter it was to grow old. And he didn't he didn't shy away from the topic when, when speaking publicly. Well, so the clips, they had a clip from 1986 um, talking about In the Night Kitchen hmm. um, because there was controversy about... Uh, a character being naked yeah, and little Mickey's li- penis. Yeah. And uh, some Mickey librarians was the, was the little boy uh, stand in for Maurice Sendak in the book. And at one point uh, his clothes come off and he's nude. So it was an interview with Terry gross. And, and so he talks about, you know, being upset about this controversy and, and he's quite, quite sassy, you know, yeah. and full of vim and vigor in that 1986 clip. And then there was a clip from, very close to his death where he was very um, sort of at ease with um, with um, his mortality huh. and it was it was quite poignant and very sad and there was not a dry eye in the room um, so it was it was kind of a cool experience you know putting together these two clips and playing them for a room full of people at NPR um, and I, and I think at that event, there were probably a lot of NPR fans who, who were there, you know, mm-hmm. out of nostalgia um, for the early days of NPR. So, and and I think that that's sort of a case in point of of what one thing that th- these historical archives can do, right, is really let us see how things change over time, or to hear how things change over time. We don't have to guess, and there's something about hearing someone's voice that's different than having read an interview with him uh, had it been in a newspaper or a magazine uh, that might've told something different than what a writer might 
or might not be able to capture or might be interpreted differently today. You might hear something only when you hear these two things back to back, when you hear younger uh, Maury Sendback versus uh, older, right? That you say, oh my gosh, now I can hear this change in his voice and it, it can illuminate a lot of these things. So, you know, I think that though, the fact that there's this focus on, on public broadcasting, I, I wonder if someone might get the impression that, or accidentally get the impression that somehow uh, the Rio Preservation Task Force has this kind of establishment NPR, you know, public radio kind of bias, right? Uh, and certainly, you know, folks who are a fan of radio are often fans of public radio because often it's some of the best radio being produced around, uh, especially these days in terms of what's accessible uh, widely on broadcast. Um, but is that the case? Is, I mean, is, is, is despite this, is, is it really biased towards that? Or it sounds as though it's, it's, it's got a, a broader scope than that. Yeah, I think... Um you know, the fact that this conference this year coincided with the 50th anniversary of the Public Broadcasting Act, that led to some partnerships um, and to some of these special events like the one at NPR and the afternoon session about the history of public broadcasting. So those were not really the main part of the program, um, which, you know, had, had uh, sessions about a wide variety of topics, including... Indigenous First First Nation Radio, mm. um, feminism and gender, um, or gender and sexuality was the name of the panel, um, and you know sessions on pragmatic topics like grant writing as well, um, Spanish and multilingual radio, Caribbean radio. So it, you know it was definitely more than public radio. African American and civil rights was one of the panels. And there's also a panel about commercial radio. And and those of us who have been working on the task force represent a wide variety of, of content areas. And and we all came together to talk about our work in in bringing in more collections to the network. Um, right. You so focus yeah. on college radio. Our friend yeah. of the show, John Anderson and, and Chris Terry, they both work on labor radio. Uh, labor is a long history in radio and owning radio stations uh, unions have over the years. So yeah, it's just, you know, it's, it's, it's the same thing I find in podcasting. And often even when I talk to people about what we do in radio or in community radio, it, uh, when I talk to people who are less intimate with these things, there's such this default sensibility sometimes that they think of public radio and they think of all things considered, or they think of uh, fresh air with Terry gross and nothing against these programs, but you know, that, and not they don't really necessarily uh, recognize the fact that there's this wide breadth of audio out there, whether it's in podcast form, whether it's in, in broadcast form or both. Um, and so I just want to make sure that we don't accidentally give folks the impression that that that's all that's under discussion or under examination or being preserved and valued here. Oh, yeah. And, you know, one of my favorite sessions was about endangered collections. And, you know, a number of things came up during that, including the aforementioned John Anderson, who talked about his project to archive pirate radio. So, you know, that's how many pirate radio archives do we have out there? Um, you know, so a that's lot. a challenge. Yeah, that's a challenge. College radio is 
is challenging, uh, and there's a lot of material in a lot of different places. Um, there was a great session that I unfortunately didn't attend, but, um, uh, friends of mine were in the room for a session that brought together collectors and archivists. Um, and you know, a lot of, um, a lot of collections are in the hands of private collectors and, and there can be tension between collectors and official archives located at institutions. So it sounds like that was a very interesting session and a lot of great conversations about how to work together. Yeah. T- when you say tension, Jennifer, my mind uh, sort of jumped to a few conclusions. What, what do you mean? What, why would there be a conflict? Doesn't everyone want radio to be preserved? Yeah, you know, but there are different practices, um, probably, and 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 we talked about this earlier. One question is access. So, a private collection might not have the same access as something that is housed in a library. Um, so, you know, that would be another great topic for a future podcast because, um, you know, I wasn't in the room, but it it, it sounds like um, there was a desire for those two groups to work together, but that yeah. there are some areas where they diverge. It's sort of like as, a private art collector versus a museum well, in some I ha- ways. I have encountered something and I probably, uh, where, where there were duplicate copies of, uh, preserved collections. And one was, uh, <laughs> one was in one vault and another was in another vault. And there's a conversation about, uh, who owned the copyright if it was, if there were duplicates. A whole nother, a whole nother I saw, it, I saw it happen a right lot. before my very, very eyes. And I was surprised because I thought, isn't the point that we want this stuff to uh, not just disappear? It's nice that it's in two vaults in yeah. two different locations, but that was not necessarily what one of the keepers of one of the vaults uh, felt about the matter. Well, and institutions are very careful about um, ownership and where things have come from. And, you know, I know one, one, one thing that came up in those conversations was that, you know, collectors might have things, sometimes they may have something that has arrived through, you know, unknown origins. Mm -hmm. So, um, and sometimes those things find their way into, um, into institutional collections. And I mean, I have a specific example of that where I visited a particular radio station and that station was, concerned about some of their materials that had left the station and now resided in a historical archive somewhere. And the radio station actually wanted those materials back in their own collection. And through conversations, I found out that some of those materials ended up in yet another library across the country um, that that radio station wasn't even aware of. So, you know, then that library is kind of in a jam about, um, can they even go move forward with digitizing or doing work on this audio collection if the ownership is in question? So there are a lot of kind of sticky issues right. in the archival world. Well, um, cause the, because the, they're, always, they're always seeking revenue sources to, to keep the lights on, to keep things preserved. And one of those sources is to sell the material when – when it comes along, I know uh, that the Pacifica Radio Archives made quite a little bit of money when Philip K. Dick's interview from a KPFK or KPFA interview from the 60s made its way onto a DVD, I think the Richard Linkletter DVD for uh, Scanner Darkly, right? So here was all of a sudden a teeny windfall 
for the very cash-strapped Pacifica Radio Archives. Got it. And if they had to compete exactly. with somebody for the ownership of this one Philip K. Dick interview, then uh, then how are they going to pay the people that work at the archives? Mm. That's exactly right. And I think um, that's the case with private collectors. Sometimes they're able to to get some income by making copies of items in their collection, you know, right. for other collectors. Yeah, or for documentaries. A lot of issues still to work out. Not everything was solved, so that means there will have to be another radio preservation task force conference. And Jennifer, I hope you'll be there. I hope, and I hope you'll share back. But I know that you'll be sharing more both at radiosurvivor.com and you are also uh, you'll be writing an article for Radio World, which I hope you'll also share with everyone uh, when that is published. Definitely. And and you are listening to Radio Survivor. We are the sound of strong communities. My name is Paul Reispendel. With me is Eric Klein. Hello, and Jennifer Waits is talking to us over Skype from San Francisco. And in the minutes we have left here, Thanksgiving is coming up in just a few days um, as we release this show. And there is a uh, annual tradition on the radio, Jennifer, that you have been charting for us uh, since the beginning of, of Radio Survivor back in 2009. What is that? Since the beginning, I thought you were going to say since the beginning of time. Since the beginning, <laughs> since the Paleolithic era. Since radio first emerged. It's Paleo Radio. I know, it's become my Thanksgiving tradition to write about the annual broadcast of the song Alice's Restaurant on radio stations across the land. So yeah, this Arlo Guthrie long story style song yeah, Alice's of restaurant sound art wasn't that what we're calling it now <laughs> yeah <laughs> i know sound work sound um, work yeah because it really is it really uh straddles genres of 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 recorded music it's not quite a song and it's not quite uh an audiobook it's a little of both and it's and it's atypical for radio because it's quite lengthy i think yeah. it's about 18 minutes long um and so it's become a tradition for many people and families to listen to this, uh, you know, because it has a little bit of a Thanksgiving yeah. the story, theme to the it. The story that Arlo is telling in the song takes place on Thanksgiving. Yeah, and that's about it. It's not really a Thanksgiving story. Um, and and so it's become a tradition for radio stations to play this particular track on Thanksgiving Day and, and fans... Um, you know, start seeking it out. And, and now fans are seeking out our annual radio, radio survivor list of stations that are airing Alice's restaurant, because it's actually kind of hard to find, um, which station is airing it. And often radio stations don't announce it until the very last minute. Um, but it's one of our top posts on radio survivor year after year. So, you know, the people are eager to listen to Alice's restaurant on their terrestrial radio on Thanksgiving Day. And and is this on community stations? Is this on public stations? Or is this on, on all kinds of stations? It's all of the above. Commercial, I mean, a lot of commercial rock stations will play it um, often around noon on Thanksgiving. Some stations will play it three times or four times on Thanksgiving. There's some radio stations that play it earlier in the week. Um, and I've found it on college radio stations, community radio stations, LPFM, commercial, online-only stations. You know, of course, you can go listen to it anytime you want 
um, on the internet. You can watch it on YouTube, but it airs on a whole bunch of radio stations all over the country on Thanksgiving. And so folks can learn more about where to find it by going to radiosurvivor.com. If you're looking the week of Thanksgiving, if you're looking just as this uh, podcast drops, um, it should be easy to find. But we have a little search bar. So if you just search uh, Alice's Restaurant, you'll find it. In fact, if you just type in Alice's Restaurant Radio in Google, you'll probably come up with uh, come up with Jennifer's posts. Uh, they're that easy to find. Um, and so, you know, take part in a tradition. Be part of the masses of people gathering around the radio That's like why in radio the old days. matters we could all listen to it all by ourselves in our headphones uh in isolated uh silos or we can all you know you can can join an audience and hear it together yeah and there's just a, a couple things i want to mention before we uh end this episode and it's a couple things i i've written about at radiosurvivor.com things i found and it sort of dovetails with with the idea of archive and dovetails with the idea of pirate radio and listening together i found this videotape that had been on public access television in portland oregon where we record recorded in my neighborhood it's called sunnyside in the early 70s which documents a pirate radio station and television station that was in the attic of some house, some like, you know, 1920s style kind of craftsman house here in the pirate television is quite something because that's a little more technically advanced. <laughs> yes. And it's fascinating that this tape exists. One, that two, it was in my neighborhood from right the here 70s. On your block. And that it was broadcast on public access TV, which was a very new thing in the 1970s. Many fewer people had cable to begin with because it only exists on cable, but that someone would document something that's ostensibly illicit, potentially illegal. All right, Paul, how much time do we have? (laughs) We have about five minutes. How, what are the unanswered questions about this piece of documentary footage that you have found? Well, I don't, I mean, I, I don't know anything about this particular station. I have not turned up any documentation about Sunnyside Pirate Radio, as they called themselves. Sunnyside Pirate Radio? Yeah. One, who and what was Sunnyside Pirate Radio? Exactly. And why, how was it broadcast? Was it part of a show? Uh, Why does this tape exist? Like it's it's all amazing. Wow! To to try and uncover anything about it, and the interesting part about that is that it was digitized by the Oregon Historical Society, which apparently has an archive of tapes from this public access television station. I have not contacted them yet. But wait, public access or pirate? Public access. This was on public access TV. Okay, here in Portland. Here in Portland, yeah. And so they have an archive of these tapes, even so, though it was a pirate television station that they were documenting okay wow so there's so it's a, a behind the scenes a very crossover and they go into the studio it's a, it's a radio tour yeah it's a radio tour and it's very dark because these are like black and white early 70s open real half inch tape cameras that don't do very well except in broad daylight this is videotape it's a video early videotape this is when it was uh two heavy objects that you had to carry on each shoulder back in the day what i uncovered was like a magazine for video artists where there's a directory in the back of every sort of private citizen 
who owns a video recorder wow. and, and camera who's willing to do video art with you. That's funny. And the guy who made it is listed, who made this particular tape is listed uh, and with his address care of KBU, which is our local community radio station. That's been wow. So it's a third string years. that connects it's, the, connects the, 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 the community so universe ask- together. You need to ask the old timers at KBU about yeah, this. Yeah, so I need to do a little bit more research, but I I, I just wanted to share this. We uh, should put we'll together put like notes. a PSA to try to get the word out. And so, what are the questions you want answered? One, who's this guy? Two, what is this station? Three, what's it doing on public access television? Why did they put it on public access television? Four, what's the fourth question you need? I don't answer? know. Oh, where? Where's the house? <laughs> yeah, where's the house? I couldn't quite tell. I mean, you can see the house uh, from the street in in the video, but it's not. I'd have to kind of like print out a still and walk around the neighborhood you know, with it, I think, to try and do it. Do it. 2017 is coming to a, a rapid conclusion here on Radio Survivor on, on planet Earth. And maybe in 2018, we can solve this riddle. And, and another thing I posted uh, about uh, that I won't get into too deeply is a uh, documentary called Inside Pirate Radio made in 1990. So this is on on high quality VHS, uh, but edited together, and it's kind of cinema verite visiting shortwave pirates <laughs> in in 1990. Um, fascinating, and it's the kind of thing. It's a great that it's on YouTube. The problem, of course, is that it could go away at any time. The person who posted, if they take it down for any reason. It's gone. And and I understand uh, by talking to one of the people who appears in the video, I emailed uh, with him, that uh, the, this documentary has shown up and gone away before on YouTube. Huh. Mm. So, but it's another fascinating look at, at it. And, and of course, I'm fascinated again by the fact that Pi Radio being an illicit thing, that folks are willing to be on camera. Although I'll, I'll mention that um, amongst the people actually broadcasting, two of them, uh, one wears kind of a, a scarf over his face. The other one wears like funny Groucho Marx glasses uh, and nose. Well, the one real risk, as I understand it, is that if you admit to pirate radio uh, activity, then you can no longer uh, be a, a leader at at, at a low power at FM legitimate radio. Yeah, just stations. just low power FM. Oh, the, the prohibition only exists for low power. So they can FM. hire you Thank at you, NPR yes. uh, to run a radio station. You could be a DJ. Yeah. And you could even be a principal at a at a full power radio. station. You just simply can't be a principal like a board director or like a station manager at a huh, low power that's FM. That's a little carve out, a little punch in the eye. Yeah, uh, thank you, Congress. Radio. Thank you, Congress. Maybe. So uh, again, this little bit of history preserved that that kind of uh, and I didn't. I mean, certainly in 1990, I didn't even know about shortwave piracy. So <laughs> it's a whole other. It's something I became aware of several years later. Neat. But it's it's these fascinating peaks. So uh, you'll find this in our show notes, radiosurvivor.com slash podcast. Um, and we are a listener and reader supported enterprise. So if you can help us out at all, you can learn how at radiosurvivor.com slash support. If you have any comments about the show, we'd love to hear from you. Our email is podcast at radiosurvivor.com. Jennifer Waits, thank you so much for joining us for this episode. Great to be back. Eric, thank you very much. Oh, it's always a pleasure. And thank you everyone for spending an hour with us. 